The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Psalm 70. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame, who say, Aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, I don't know if you uh, do this often, but I do this quite a bit. I have on my uh, phone uh, where you can scroll through certain articles and you can link it in Apple News or those kind of things and whatever. And uh, recently, I think it was just even this week, beginning of this last week, an article came over and I, from the Washington Post, and I thought, what, what is this? And, and, and the title was this, No Song, Movie, or Show Can Escape the Digital Age's Revisionist Urges. And I thought, what is, okay, that's interesting sounding. So I open it up, and I start reading it, and it begins talking about, particularly uh, it, it currently, how uh, Beyonce and Lizzo have taken some of their songs and have revised some of the lyrics and gone back and changed them as they've re-released them and those kind of things. And that this isn't anything new, that a lot of, um, there was an uproar even, even when Star Wars uh, (laughs) released its older versions of the movies, the first uh, three with Mark Hamill and those, and could like change some of the digital parts of it. And people were like, no, leave leave it the way it was. You know, that this has become a new thing. Uh, and you, we're going to see it more and more. And as I was reading this article, what I thought was really interesting uh, was the way that they talked about this, that profet- certain professors unpacked. What does it mean to live in a revisionist age where many, and, and especially with digital life, we can go back and try and fix maybe something we don't like that we find uncomfortable that maybe have ca- has caused a stir. Listen to what they said. It says, we live in a, uh, an age of revision in which art is impermanent, ever-shifting, always on the precipice of being fixed or updated. The motivations for such changes can vary. Online pressures from fans or the perfectionist tendencies or an anxious artist or a potential legal issue. It all can send creators and producers back to the originals to correct a perceived wrong. A network or studio or record label can update or delete its library to avoid offending consumers. And the reasons are potentially unlimited. No art is ever considered final in the digital age. And this is what one of the professors said. I always tell my students, if you really love something, buy it in hard copy, (laughs) own it and have a DVD of it or a Blu-ray or CD of it. Now that's starting to even get a little bit antiquated, right? Get the hard copy of it because it may change and you may not have the original. And you know what's interesting? This has not just happened in art, which I think art is oftentimes the subject of it because of its subjectivity. But the Bible has come under that as well. Many things have, but including that. And the Bible over the centuries, not just recently, 
But over the centuries has provoked, has had passages that cause people discomfort. And there have been people over the years, some of notoriety, who when they've encountered that difficulty, have either tried to remove those passages or work around them. And we're coming to a certain genre of Psalms. And that's what we've been doing this uh, this summer really is looking at the Psalms and a genre, you know, meaning that what type of Psalm is it? We're looking at categories of them. This is a category that causes the most discomfort. It's called the imprecatory Psalms. And these are the Psalms that you got a little taste of reading this that speaks of the psalmist or one praying and they're, they're invoking almost God to go against someone else. That they're praying towards God to bring down justice on someone that really they think needs it. And if there's anything that can cause us discomfort is when we run into something like this and it kind of, especially in a church and we're like, isn't this supposed to make us more like nice to people? What is the point of these passages? Why are they not removed? There's nothing about this is to be revised. In fact, we'll look at this in, a, in, in, a, in our time together that this was actually used to sing in worship. So how do we connect this? How do we make sense of what the psalmist is saying here with us and our hearts towards the Lord and one another? So we're going to look at this psalmist. We're going to actually look at what he gives us of himself in three ways. We're going to look at his position. We're going to look at his desire, and we're going to look at his Lord, his position, his desire, and his Lord. Um, you know, when this psalm begins, and you may have caught it, anytime you hear poetry, you should hear and listen. And if you've ever been in a class before, you listen for repetition, right? Uh, you listen for something that happens again. So verse one and verse five have the same thing in it. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You're my help and deliver. O Lord, do not delay. I don't know about you. I have had this multiple times where I receive a text and <laughs> I'll send back a reply and, and I'll get a question mark or something. And they're like, and this just happened there. I can look at people in this room and, and <laughs> know that I've done this to you. And you're like, what are you responding to? Because I didn't read the text close enough to whether a certain day or a certain question they were asking. <laughs> yeah, they're laughing. People in this room are laughing right now because they know I've done this. I'll just read it real quick. And I'll be like, oh yeah, da, 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 da. And they're like, why are you asking me that? You know, like, did you read what I wrote to you? You know, the psalmist poetry does this to make us know exactly where and what is to be known about it. So when the psalmist wrote this, it was bookended. Notice that. It's like on either end of this, they want us to repeat it. <laughs> so there's no mistaking, where is this person coming from? And in fact, some people think that this was lifted out of another psalm. The end of Psalm 40, which you too, my favorite band, wrote a song about, uh, the very end of that psalm is this, almost exactly. The last four, five, four or five verses. And some people think that they lifted it out of that psalm and created its own because there was something about this one that touched deep in the heart of what we need to understand in, as worshipers. 
And, and Martin Luther thought it was so important. It, it was funny. When I looked up commentaries for this, most people were like, yeah, just look at Psalm 40. Or they gave like a little snippet. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote 10 plus pages just about these five verses because this is what he said. He said, it is neat, crucial for us to learn as a defense against every attack of fear, presumption, and being lukewarm. It is to evoke something in us. And what is it doing? It's talking about haste, hurry. It, somewhere in this, the psalmist wants us to know and to touch a part of us that his position is one of immediacy. It is a place where if there's delay, there could be catastrophic issues. Maybe even death for this person. This hasten to me, O oh God, D deliver me. Don't delay. Why are you waiting? And why does he do that? Why is it connected to this? Because when I experience this, and I'm sure you do, the tyranny of the urgent kicks in. So sometimes I'll pray for something and then, you know, often my mind will go to, okay, what do I need to do next? <laughs> How do I carry this out? Because I go, well, yes, my position is one before the Lord, but I also have agency. I need to like, I need to take it up. But if you notice in this, and especially at the very end, it's taken out of his hands. He says, I'm poor and needy in verse five. He says he's vulnerable and he's humble. It means he's vulnerable that he's helpless. He can't take it up. And I don't know if you've been in a place where you felt that immensely, where you felt such a profound sense of God, I need you to do this now. And it's not that you can take it up and try and accomplish it yourself, but that you're looking at him to say, God, I need you to do this now because I'm so vulnerable. I literally cannot do anything. I'm helpless. I cannot take it up. He can't do it himself. That's why he says poor and needy. He can't take it. Uh, I, there's a book that um, I've mentioned before, and I'll, I'll mention it throughout because I think it's really one of the best books that you can read on this connection between our emotions and the Psalms. It's called Cry of the Soul, somewhat of an older book. I mentioned this before, but these two uh, men wrote it, a, a seminary professor and um, uh, a, a clinical psychologist, a therapist. And, and what they do is they really make the connections of what is the Psalm really drawing out in us? What is it to do? And they say about these kind of psalms, it said, in unrighteous anger, when we feel that, that hurry up God, we feel this. We think the demands for the self is a more tolerable world now instead of waiting for God's redemption and timing. That our demands now are much more tolerable. If I can get this done now and not wait for him and deal with whatever is going on in me, I, I'll do it. This psalm is driving back to the fact of not just vulnerability, but humility. It is very easy for us, and I find this to be true in our state, in our place, that we have a lot that we can accomplish, that we pray only when we find ourselves kind of in a pickle or need something from God. But when do we really pray and go to him about, God, we need you to come now and just sit and let ourselves experience the difficulty of waiting. You know, when we pray, there's a, a famous prayer that maybe even if you're here and you would say, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not, but I know I've been in the church, I've heard this prayer. It's called the Lord's Prayer. The Lord Jesus taught us to pray. 
He said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's something sometimes we may even have memorized. But you know, when we're praying that, we're actually praying this, we're saying, Lord, your kingdom come, my kingdom go. That's what that means. And that is a really hard thing to do. It is a hard thing to find ourselves poor and needy, not just without, you know, in a social category, but in a deep, profound way, vulnerable and humble because we cannot do it in our own strength. And you know, as well as I do, when we find ourselves lashing out the most in our crucial moments is when we're trying to grasp at control. We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. And and here's what's interesting about this position of the psalmist. They don't take it. it. Many think this is probably David. I think it probably was. But lifted out of the rest of the other psalm to show when you are under pressure, not just pressure personally, but from others without, and you feel the pressure of whatever it is from enemies that maybe a long list, a short list, that play the tapes in your head about who you think you are and your prayer is, God, do not delay. What do you do with it? What position do you take? Because this is what makes this uncomfortable for people when they take this prayer like this and they look at the Bible and they go, the Bible's ridiculous. See, and all of us know that what we typically do is with our enemies, when we're in a place where we need God's help, we take it up into our own hands. The imprecatory Psalms aren't just about, hey, let's read about David or whomever else railing against somebody else. Hey, isn't that already prevalent in our culture? Isn't everybody else in our culture positioning themselves in order that they can be right and everybody can be wrong? The psalmist doesn't do that. The psalmist says, yes, I need help. Yes, there are enemies and it is real. But how do we handle that before God? How do we take it? We take our righteous position before him to allow us to make sense of this pain. That's where it moves from the position of saying, I'm vulnerable. Look, he's not putting them on a bad hook and him on a good hook. That's why he says, I'm poor and needy. He's not saying, look, I'm way better than them. I get it and they don't. You notice the uh, language, and you may have heard this again, if, if you're coming back into a church, or maybe this is how you've been burned by a church, is that what's called the us-them language. Many of you may have heard that. Notice this passage talks about them. It uses that language, but it doesn't do it in the way that we typically do. It's not, look at those bad people over there so we can look at us good in here. Look, we made it. We're in church. We're doing the right thing. That's not what this is pointing at. It's saying the first position we have to take is one of vulnerability and humility. Because otherwise, we take any of that work up into our own hands. We take revenge 
We take gossip. That's where all these things emanate from. What is gossip? It's just the subtle, small, quiet ways that we can attack and destroy other people because they are our enemies. And if we can take them down even quietly and keep ourselves up, we can maintain our position. Notice, there is no bones about what this psalmist needs. He needs God to act. And he opens up his heart to it. So what, what is our response when you see let them, and not only let them one time, three times is the them language, let them. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a commentary on the Psalms, the, the famous writer who wrote Chronicles of Narnia. And he admittedly says at the beginning of that, that he is not a theologian. And there are very few times that I will say something like this, but I, I love C.S. Lewis, but there are few moments where I read him and I go, man, I don't agree with you here. And there, it's two, two parts. The first part Lewis takes about this in particular, these kind of Psalms, he takes a whole chapter on it. And he says, you know what? This is showing the honesty of the heart. And I could not agree more. Is there anybody more, uh, you know, apt to unpack our desires and, than C.S. Lewis to talk about where does this really come from? And we should. In fact, these Psalms are in here for us to know what's really going on in you? Because I want to say first, and I agree with Lewis completely about this, that I think everybody in this room thinks that, you know what, once we hear something like this, we should leave these doors and we should be nicer to everybody. Like this kind of thing that's in a Psalm, but we don't go out and we don't talk about this. We don't certainly don't say these kind of things before God. But that's actually what we're supposed to do is to bring our actual desire to God. And this is where C.S. Lewis, and I would differ with him, is he says, he thinks that this is more of a sinful tone, that this is taking a sinful direction. I actually don't. I think because, and here's why, when the Psalms, when they were in a service, they were singing these Psalms. They didn't revise them. They didn't go back and say, oh, you know, that doesn't square with what Jesus says, we need to go back and take these words out. In fact, that, isn't that the criticism of what a lot of people think the Bible has been over the years? And it's not, unashamedly. The Bible is what it is and it's been formed. But I actually think it's what one of our, uh, our family's dear friends says about what does it mean to have enemies? And I love what he said. He said, the goal in life is not to have no enemies, it's to have the right ones. Listen to that. The goal in life is not to have no enemies at all. It's to have the right enemies. And I think that's a really profound way of looking at that and to understand it. What does it mean to have the right enemies? Let's look at this passage here. When he says, let's look at the three parts where it says in verses two and three, let them, let them, let them. It first says, let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. What is he talking about there? He's first praying towards, let them be put to shame. Not that the shame we think like publicly holding them up and saying, look how terrible they are. Not tweeting about them, not doing that. What he's saying is, would their plans fail? Whatever was going on in this passage, we don't know specifically, but they had plans against the psalmist. 
the person writing this. And he's praying, he or she is praying, saying, let them be put to shame who seek my life. They have these plans and would they be foiled? Would they fail in their face? Just blow up completely so that they would be turned back. That's what it says next. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. And I would say that is so descriptive of when we feel like what an enemy is, it's someone we think delights in our hurt. And you know what? If we're being honest, it's that hard candy of delight that we pop in our mouths and roll around when we think about our own enemies. That we can delight in someone else's hurt. And everyone knows that person. Everybody has that person. We can think about them right now. Maybe they popped in your head now. Maybe there's somebody you're trying not to think about desperately. But that is what is being evoked here. Is that let them be turned back and brought to dishonor, repulsed. You know what it means actually? It means that they would see themselves in a mirror clearly. That those who seek the harm and pain of others would actually see themselves for what they're doing as they're committing. So they turn back. You know what it's like you see? You see yourself in a mirror in a way you don't want to see it. You turn back quickly. That's the picture of what he's praying. He's saying, would they see themselves? Would the mirror drive them? And then finally it says, would they turn back because of their shame? Because they say, aha, aha. I thought that was kind of funny. I don't know why. I'm like, aha, aha, of all things that could be written and you sing in church, can you imagine? We're singing along, turn back and shame. Aha, aha, we're just singing that. Uh, Kind of a funny thing. But it's incredibly descriptive because what it means is when you fail and somebody looks at you and says, aha, they got exactly what they had coming. You see? That's what they deserved. That's what aha means. What the psalmist is doing, and and I love this, that it points out what's called ironic justice. What these psalms are trying to tell us is that we pray towards our enemies and for them in a way that they would experience what they are doing to others. And you know what? To be honest, as we can be enemies for other people, are we experiencing the human, going back to the beginning, the vulnerability and humility of what it means before God so that we can actively pray this. You know what somebody wrote in um, one of the commentaries I read and I thought, you know what? They are exactly right. Typically, we read this and we think it's supposed to make us less angry. This person wrote, and I thought, that is very true. We are not angry enough. We, in our prayers, bringing our heart before God, are not angry enough. We don't come, we do think that we're to be nicer, and that is not the gospel. The good news of Jesus is in light of the deep, profound, bad news that we know is true. This psalm is helping you and I unlock the profound anger we have and to make sense of it and our desires before the God of heaven and earth. And here's how we know that's true. Because it connects to the character of someone who has even more profound anger than we do. 
God. And here's why we know that. To the degree you have healthy anger is to the degree you have a healthy love. It is when our anger is all over the place, like a hose with nobody holding it, that it spews out and sprays and is not effective at all for us to love and care. Anger can be very helpful. And I think we dampen it down, especially as Christians. We get angry over other things. This is what I think that comment is saying about having the right enemies and about having our anger focused. It's not about being culture warriors. It's not about being in the right political party. It's not about us reading the right things. It's not about us being in even the perfect church. It's about us being before the right Lord. His character shapes us. Notice, where does he go? You may not have, we don't read it up there. I kind of wish we did. But if you're looking in your Bible, there's actually a, a heading for these. And the heading for this one says this, to the choir master of David for the memorial offering. This means that when they came to give an offering to God, this psalm was a part of that. You know what's really interesting about that? Jesus said at one point, if you have anything against your brother and you come to worship, you need to set that down, your offering down, and go and reconcile. But you know what he was talking about there? In both cases, he wasn't dismissing that we have anger or that there's issues. The whole point is that worship connects to the way that not only we see ourselves before God, but that we see our enemies. That our heart can't be, look, this table is the picture of this. And this is how the Psalm actually ends in this way, is to say that God comes to those of us, not because we're already perfect or friends, but because he takes his first century and his 21st century enemies and makes them friends. He takes those who were saying, and actually the language is in it, in the good news of the gospel, that that's what gospel means, good news. That it's not like any other news. It's good news in light of what you think you are and what everyone else says you are. It's not any other news that we play in our head. It's good. Because in light of all the bad news, it tells you who you really are before him. It connects to his character. Think about this. There are enemies. We can talk about enemies on a scale. We have enemies on Instagram. We have enemies overseas. So we see in certain, uh, you know, engaged in certain things across the world. We go, there are enemies, ours, in terms of us as citizens or us maybe in our idealistic, you know, uh, political view. But you know, one of the greatest things that taught, there's a man named Miroslav Volf, who was a Croatian Christian years ago, who suffered a lot of things that we've actually read about what Ukraine has been under with Russia, seeing horrible atrocities done to his people and surrounding. And one of the things that that shaped him the most, 
he said, was watching that suffering and injustice because it drove him back to the character of God in the midst of what he wanted to do with his own justice. It's shaped to the one who has the ultimate justice. And he said this about it. He said, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. If you want to know the distinction of Christianity than anything else, it's these two verses in verse four here. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May all who seek you. Christianity is the most inclusive, exclusive religion. It is the most inclusive. May all who seek you. And then it says this, may those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. It is exclusive. Because what is his salvation? It's not ours. If it was in our hands, our enemies would all be gone, including ourselves. But what does God do for his enemies? He sets a table to remind us that what he takes up in himself is by sending his son to pay the price at the hands of his enemies, not to point off the cross or yell at them and say, you're gonna get it. What does he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The way that we can pray honestly and with anger and humility isn't because we can change our character. It's because we have a God with a character unlike any other. There is no philosophy, no religion, no other way that says, may all who seek you, totally inclusive. And yet is it exclusive because it comes through the body and blood of the God himself who holds all the justice and all the mercy to bring it to you so that we can cry out, God, and you may be in that place. And I wanna encourage you as you taste this bread and wine and juice, that you would be reminded that his care for you is immediate. And you can cry out in the midst, Lord, don't delay. Don't delay where I am. You may be here this morning. You may say, God, I have such anger towards those around me and my enemies. I, there are some people I hate and I cannot get past it. Would this melt your heart to bring the justice that God doesn't miss so that you can be angry and yet do not sin as the Bible says. It says actually be angry. <laughs> yet don't take it up in your own hands like the psalmist said and he didn't do. But come knowing that Jesus himself gives his life to die. This places justice and judgment squarely on his shoulders so that you may taste the mercy and kindness that is yours. You're tasting that you are no longer an enemy, but you are a friend of the God of heaven and earth because he loves you that much in Christ. Amen.